glad you could join us this morning. Um, a couple uh, more uh, announcements. We have a, a lot going on. Pretty busy this time of year, but it's good it's as long as we are busy uh, with the Lord's work. Um, we do have the welcome orientation after uh, the service uh, this morning. So that orientation will be held in the back room here by the ramp. Uh, for those of you who are staying for that um, and want to partake of the food as well, please um, we'll try to get the lunch going, uh, the food prepared sooner uh, so that you can go down there, grab your food, and bring it on up here. And what? It's on? Well, um, it's green. I was waiting for you to turn the volume up. Anyway, um, I'll continue with the announcement part. Um, so if you can grab your food and you can bring that to you uh, to the tables, there's tables there so you can eat and partake of the orientation um, as well. Um, also, uh, for table talk, um, I meant to put this in the pre-sermon email, but I, I forgot. Um, our next book for table talk is Created to Draw Near, Our Life as God's Royal Priests by Edward T. Welch. Um, and when we meet on January 6th, uh, we will cover the introduction through chapter 7. So the introduction through chapter 7, uh, the chapters are really short. Uh, so that's, even though it's the intro to chapter 7, it's actually about 25 pages, 26 pages of reading. Um, so it, it's, it's light reading, I think. Um, so um, that's what we got coming up for, for table talk. All right, now let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. And we're good with the mic, right? All right, giddy up. Father, thank you for your mercy, thank you for your grace, thank you for your blessings. We ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word, that we would recognize your voice, that we would know truth, and that we would be able to apply it rightly in our lives as we seek to glorify you, Father. And we ask that we ask to do this, Father, by the power of the Spirit that indwells within us, that convicts us, that encourages us, that strengthens us, that comforts us, Father, to help us not to be distracted uh, by the busyness of the season, by the busyness of life, by the burdens, the worries, or even the, the, the pleasures and the delights of this life, Father. Help us to be focused on you and your holiness. May we rightly humble ourselves before you so that we would be edified, sanctified, and equipped to do your good work that you have given us to do, Father. We thank you for all these things, Father, and we ask that as we go out from here that we would be able to glorify you with all the things that you've given us to do. We ask this by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You ever wonder what a life uh, of purpose, uh, of meaning, looks like? You ever wonder, how do you know if what you are doing is meaningful? If this is what you were created for? And what are the consequences of not living for the right purpose, with the right meaning? Or do you believe that, ultimately, it, it doesn't really matter? that this life is meaningless anyway, and there are no consequences except the ones that you put upon yourself. Last week in Judges 8, we covered the ambition of, of Gideon, uh, which led him to create an ephod clothed in pagan splendor that would act as an idol and cause Israel to whore after it in unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Today in chapter 9 of Judges, and if you haven't opened uh, your Bibles, uh, please uh, do so. Open your Bibles to cha uh, Judges chapter 9. Uh, the author shows us the fruit of a life lived apart from the right purpose and right meaning. A life of idolatry and selfish ambition. 
Now, the chapter before us does not contain a judge, nor is it part of one of the cycles, uh, for, 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 of one of the judge, judgeship cycles. Uh, if you recall last uh, week in Judges 8, uh, Gideon's cycle ended, and in chapter 9, there is no start to a new uh, cycle, nor is a new judge uh, mentioned, and we don't get that standard uh, refrain that tells us Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord again, and uh, the Lord sent such and such oppressor upon the people. We don't get that. This is a, a chapter that has no judge nor any cycle, a beginning or ending within it. Nonetheless, though, it is uh, still connected to the flow and purpose of the book. We are going to work our way uh, through the chapter, the text itself first, get a handle for what it records for us, and then we'll consider the fruit and futility of idolatry. And then we'll, we will conclude how we can avoid such fruit and futility in our own lives by finding the meaning and purpose of our lives. Now, due to the number of the verses in our chapter this morning, I will not be reading the whole chapter uh, word for word as I typically do. Uh, some of it will be read, and the rest of it will be paraphrased. So be sure to have your Bibles open so that you can uh, follow along and be a good Berean to uh, make sure that what I am saying is faithful and true. So let's begin. In verses 1 through 6, the, the table gets set for us in two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 3, uh, shows us the politics behind the chapter. And the second part, verses 4 through 6, reveal to us the violence, the activity that makes it possible. Uh, last week, we were first introduced to Abimelech, the son of Gideon, uh, who was born of a concubine woman, a, a Shechemite woman. Here in verses 1 through 3, we are told that uh, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, and remember, Jerubbaal is, is Gideon's other name that he got for destroying the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole. Well, we're told that Abimelech, he goes to Shechem, that is to his mother's side of the family. So think Shechemites. Shechemites are not Israelites. They are Canaanites. Right? Gideon's side, his father's side, would be primarily Israelites. So Abimelech, he goes to Shechem, and he tells his family, hey, convince the leaders of Shechem that I, Abimelech, ought to be king because I am, after all, one of their own. And over time, as the family of of Abimelech whispers into the ears and have conversations with the leaders. The leaders of Shechem are influenced enough to be inclined to having Abimelech as their king. Because as verse 3 tells us, he is of their blood. He is their brother, their bone and flesh. In light of this, in verses 4 through 6, we read of how the leaders of Shechem and how Abimelech paved the way for his kingship. They, they give Abimelech 70 pieces of silver from their pagan a temple that the house of Baal beareth. And Abimelech uses that money to pay for 70, uh, to pay for some worthless and reckless men to help him slaughter his 70 brothers. So a piece of silver for each brother that he aims to slaughter. So Abimelech, he goes north of these worthless, reckless men. He goes north about 30 miles to Afra, to his father's side of the family. Afra is the hometown of Gideon. And so he goes there to take the lives of those who might be able to make a claim to the throne. See, if Abimelech goes to the throne and he has 70 brothers that are still alive, well, they could easily say, well, that throne belongs to me. I'm older than he is. I'm the son of Gideon too. So Abimelech slaughters them. And he slaughters them on one stone. The, the fact that we have one stone here shows that this, 
this, this act, this massacre was deliberate, it was meticulous, it was a pre-med, premeditated nature, uh, it shows the premeditated nature of this act. It was cold-blooded. This was not something that was done uh, with passion or, or caught up in the moment, and the men were just all of a sudden slaughtered where, where they stood. No, it was one at a time. Tommy, you're next. Bill, you're next. Tim, you're next. Dragging them up there and slaughtering them on one stone. Abimelech is living up to his father's namesake. If you remember, Gideon means hacker or hewer. And Abimelech is doing that with his own relatives. However, not all the brothers are killed. The youngest, Jotham, he escapes. Um, after, so he escapes this, this massacre. And after this, this massacre, this slaughter, this bloody event, the leaders of Shechem, as well as those of, of Beth Mello, and Beth Mello, we're not sure what that location is, but clearly it must be some town, maybe like a suburb or, or a village nearby Shechem that's uh, closely related to Shechem to where the leaders, they, they form like the same council, uh, some s- whatever their leadership structure is, uh, they share it, um, and they make Abimelech king. They do it by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And then in verse 7 through 21, we get a fable. Okay, an actual fable, and it's a true fable. It's a great fable. If you, if you haven't read it before, I, I, I like fables. So I li- I li- this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I might say that a lot about Scripture, but it is Scripture. It is God's Word. Ought to like all of it. So uh, this I will read to you word for word, starting verse 7, and we'll go through verse 21. Now, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. Now, now Gerizim should be somewhat familiar uh, to you if you're familiar with uh, the Torah. Uh, this mountain sits across from Mount Ebal, right? Both of these mountains are where God commands the people of Israel to place the blessing on Mount Geriz- Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Uh, this time, however, Mount Gerizim will not be a place of blessing. Um, it will be a place of cursing. Um, and you can read about these two mountains in Deuteronomy 11, 27, as well as Joshua 8. So Jotham, he goes to this mountain, he cries aloud. So he's standing on this mountain, looking down on Shechem, and he said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And then he begins the fable. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruits and hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the, the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me keen over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, the bramble is skeptical of this request, and it makes sense. What kind of shade does a bramble provide? It doesn't have leaves. It doesn't have fruit. It has thorns. It's, 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 it's worthless. It's reckless to have a, a bramble to reign over the trees and for the other trees to take shade under it. It's a worthless plant for that purpose. 
And that's the point of Abel. As Jotham goes on, he reads on in verse 16, he interprets the fable in case people aren't getting it. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king. Okay, so Abimelech here is the bramble, as well as the leaders of, the leaders of Shechem are the other trees. And if you have dealt well with Jer- Jerubal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deser- deserved, and then he tells us what those deeds are. My father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons. Seventy men on one stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servants. In other words, he, he's calling Abimelech um, here a bastard, right? He, he's born out of wedlock. So he, he's throwing in some, adro- he's calling him what he is. King over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity of Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out from the bramble. Let the fire come out from Abimelech and, let, and, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethmelo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Bethmelo and devour Abimelech. After saying this, Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So going on from here, God then creates a division. Right, he sends an evil spirit. Now, this evil spirit, it, it could be a demonic spirit, but it might be a, a righteous, holy spirit. Uh, in the Hebrew, the, the term here for evil is ra, and it doesn't necessarily mean evil in the moral sense, in the, in the sense of morality, or in the nature or character of the being, but evil can also be understood as calamity. Uh, like, it, it's a calamitous spirit. It creates division. It creates distress. It creates calamity, which is something that Yahweh himself uh, can do. Uh, but regardless of, of which one it is, because it doesn't really change the fact it could be a demonic spirit, because both spirits, all spirits, are subservient uh, to Yahweh. And as the text tells us, it was God who sent the spirit. This spirit leads the men of Shechem to deal treacherously with Abimelech. And note verse 24. Verse 24 states the reason why the spirit was sent. Because of the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal. A violence committed by Abimelech and his worthless, reckless men, supported by the trees, by the leaders of Shechem. So the men of Shechem, they start robbing Abimelech's men. They're not rejoicing in him anymore. And a new fellow in verse 25 arrives on the scene. Gael, a Shechemite. He, a true Shechemite, he moves into town. Uh, Abimelech apparently is no longer living in Shechem. In verse 41, we're told that he lives in um, Aruma, uh, Arama. So he lives there. So he's outside the town, disconnected from those who appointed him a- a- as king. And Gael, he's there in Shechem, and he gains the confidence of the local leaders. And, and leaders, they're rejoicing in Gael. They're not rejoicing in Abimelech anymore. So they have a, a big festival, a big party, supporting and celebrating this man. This party ends up in the house of their God, and there they, they drank and they reviled their king, Abimelech. It is there that Gael taunts Abimelech with these words found in verses 28 through 29. Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that his people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech 
I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So with these words, Gael brings to mind that Abimelech is not a full Shechemite. He, he, he's calling Abimelech a half-breed. He's mixed. He's half Shechemite. He's half Israelite. And he's saying the Shechemites should serve someone who is truly a Shechemite, somebody who is a son of Hamor. Now, if you don't remember who Hermor is, you go back to Genesis 34 and you learn of Hermor. Hermor is the father of Shechem, right? That's the name that the town is named after is Shechem. Shechem desired uh, the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, uh, raped her, and then tried to marry her. Uh, the, the sons of Jacob deceived Hermor and Shechem say, hey, if you become like us to become circumcised, then we'll let you marry her and we can trade daughters and sons, and we, we can answer Mary, and it was all a trick, because on the third day after the circumcision, the sons of Jacob, they go to where Shechem and Hamor are, and they kill all of them. So that's who Hamor is. So Zebul, he somehow hears the words that were spoken, and he lets Abimelech know, and they come up with this strategy. Hey, wait outside of, of the gate in the fields, and you're going to ambush them in the morning. So in the morning, Gael, he shows himself by the gate, and the men in the field, they rush him. And Gael, he tries to distract Zebul. He says, look, people are coming down from the mountains. My friends, I have allies. They're coming down to help. Zebul doesn't buy it. So he tries it again. Look in the center of the field. I got more people coming. He's trying to distract him, trying to discourage him, trying to get him to flee. And Zebul doesn't fall for it. And he mocks him, wondering, where is this courage? You were talking so big and so brash the other day. Where is it now? And so... He goes on, and, and Gael engages Abimelech, and he loses the fight. Abimelech goes away. Then the people of the village, the next day, they, they come out. And then Abimelech comes back, slaughters the town's residents, and he doesn't stop in the field. This time he goes into the village, and he continues slaughtering the people in the village he and he, to the point to where the village is raised, and they put salt on the ground. They put salt on the ground because if you put salt on the ground, it ruins the soil. You can't grow things. Um, it, it prevents, the, the intent is to prevent life from springing up or being sustained there again. So after he does that, Abimelech, he withdraws momentarily to Mount Zalman. Now presumably uh, Abimelech, uh, what he raised here wasn't the full village. Oftentimes in these villages, you'd have like the lower portion or the unfortified section of the city. And then you'd have the upper portion, which would be like the stronghold, where the tower would be, where the defenses are. So apparently he hasn't done that part yet. He, he, he left, as verse 46 tells us, the stronghold of the, of the house of El Bereth was not touched. Now, El Bereth, in this case, is referring to Baal Bereth, their local, de their local deity, not the El Bereth, which is sometimes associated with Yahweh. Yahweh is sometimes called El Bereth, which means God of the covenant, God of the, uh, of the treaty. Baal Bereth means Lord of the covenant, or it can also be understood as, as God of, of the treaty as well. But this time, this title is not ascribed to Yahweh. It's ascribed to uh, their local deity, uh, Baal that they're worshiping, the house of Baal, we, Baal Bareth, which we were introduced at the start of the chapter. So Abimelech, maybe he thought all the leaders were dead, but he finds out there, there are more. And so he's on top of the mountain, there are trees there, and he gets to cutting down some wood. And as a good leader, he sets the example and says, hey, do as I do, just like his father did. Hey, follow me when we surround the camp of Midian and do as I do. 
Abimelech's doing the same thing. Do as I do. He uses that wood and he sets the stronghold along with the, she- uh, with, the, with the tower of Shechem. He sets it on fire. All in all, about a thousand people die. Thus, part one of the fable is fulfilled. Now, Abimelech, he continues fighting and we're not told why. Perhaps he's like, I'm just going to wipe out this, this plague of people, that this, these people who sought to usurp me or maybe he's trying to expand his territory. And he goes to uh, Thebes. Uh, perhaps another city, a satellite city closely connected to Shechem. It's nearby somewhere. We don't know where exactly. Captures, besieges the town. And as he's fighting against their tower of refuge, their strong tower, a a woman of of some strength, she would have to be of some strength, drops a millstone on Abimelech's head and crushes his skull. Um, And he commands his armor bearer with him to finish the job to prevent a humiliating death. If you remember... Uh, one oppressor, uh, Sisera, right back in uh, Judges um, 5, 4 and 5, 4 is when it happened, uh, was killed by Jael, a woman, and that was a humiliating death for him. And likewise, Abimelech is trying to avoid uh, the same outcome. And then upon his death, the men of Israel, they return home. Now note, Abimelech started this chapter not with the Israelites. He started with the she- Shechemites. Now he's with the Israelites. Uh, apparently, Abimelech was playing both sides of his genealogy as it suited him. Now, let's read the final two verses in the author's concluding thoughts. Verses 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So all that we have just covered, all of that, from verse 1 to verse 57, all of that God did. God held Abimelech accountable for his evil against Gideon. God also held the leaders, the trees, the men of Shechem for the evil against Gideon. See, regardless of their wills, regardless of their ambitions, their unfaithfulness, what they knew or did not know of God, God's sovereign hand was always in charge. It was never restricted. It was never denied. God is always acting. God is always permitting. He's always prohibiting. His sovereign will is never frustrated, nor is it slowed, regardless of one's belief. So let us step back and out of the trees and let us consider the forest as it is before us, having now walked through it. Abimelech, the son of Gideon, the son of Jerubbaal, he picks up where his father left off. See, his father planted the seed of idolatry. And Abimelech brought the fruit to bloom, and he harvested that fruit. This fruit of idolatry was marked by selfish ambition, not unlike Gideon's own ambition near the end of his life. But this time, Abimelech's ambition is completely unhindered with sin. There's no divine encounter with Yahweh. There's no correction. There's no challenge from God or a man of God or a prophet. This is pure idolatry, pure unfaithfulness, pure wickedness. Uh, Such sin ought to call to mind Proverbs 5.22, where we read, uh, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, the sinner, and he is held fast in the courts of his sin. Or the words of Job in Job 31.3, Is not calamity for the unrighteous? and disaster for the workers of iniquity. Such sin that Abimelech engaged in, such ambition, 
is the kind that leads to violence, bloodshed, and the burning of living bodies. An ambition with a lack of consideration for his father Gideon and all that Gideon had done for him and his people. In other words, all that Yahweh had done for him and his people. We see the toxicity of this fruit as it attracted the leaders of Shechem. Though this fruit was enticing, this idolatrous fruit ultimately was also their downfall, as it was also Abimelech's downfall. The two groups were pulled together through their idolatry, through their ambition, and they ended up turning on each other out of the same things, ambition and pride. Actions and wills that were pursuing futile things, engaging in futile efforts, like a bramble trying to provide shade for the vine or the olive tree or the fig tree. To think that they could act this way with such ingratitude towards the man whom God used to deliver them from the oppression of Midianites is the height of arrogance. To, to think that you can live as you want to live when God has given you so much is foolish. It is reckless. And it is worthless behavior. Idolatrous behavior is always, regardless of what kind of what you're doing, if it's idolatrous, it is futile. Not only does it produce fruit that is harmful and brings upon those who engage in idolatry a divine reckoning, but idols cannot save, nor can they deter the will of God. It is truly a worthless and reckless way to live. Pursuing one's own dream, one's own ambition that goes against the will of God is like a fish believing he can live on land. The fish may end up on land and he may live like Abimelech ruled for three years, he may live for a moment, but ultimately the fish will die. And his efforts will have proven to be utterly fruitless. It brings no value, no purpose to the fish's life, only death. Or it's like the bird in the air who, who admires the fish swimming in the clear water below and wants to be like them, and so he dives with all of his efforts to get as deep and as and far into the water as he can. But once there, try as he may, he realizes eventually the error of his ways. He's not a fish. He cannot swim, nor can he breathe. Thus he dies. To pursue things that are not of God for you is just as futile and just as dangerous. To desire things that God has not created you for, for you to, to, to desire, to pursue, is ultimately to desire your own end. It is to be like the trees of the forest, asking the bramble to provide shade and to rule over the other trees. So how do we provide, excuse me, how do we avoid the fruit of idolatry and the futility it brings? How do you avoid living a life like the bramble, but instead living a life like the olive, the fig, or vine? A, a life that has purpose, meaning, and honor. A life that is productive, rather than a life of worthlessness, futility, and recklessness. That is bound for the ins inescapable and unquenchable fire. Where do you go for your meaning? Where do you go to find purpose? Where do you go for your validation? Do you even have meaning and purpose? Or are you nowadays just simply floating along, surviving day to day? Maybe your life has always been full of drama, toxic relationships, one unwise move after another, and you've always been looking for purpose, meaning, value, identity, validation. You're looking for a place to call home, but everywhere you turn, you're not getting it. 
Maybe for a spell you get it, but it's not lasting. And sometimes where you go to get it, it ultimately leaves you more empty than you were before. Where are you to go to find the purpose of your life, the fulfillment of your life? Do you turn to the academy, the institutions of higher and great learning, do you, to, to learn about life, science, the arts, and the meaning of all this, where we have come from, where we are heading, hoping that by achieving some level of knowledge and understanding, you'll attain nirvana and escape all this. Well, on whose authority? And what level of knowledge is needed? And who has actually done this? Are you even capable of such learning? Or, or do you turn to social media? You attempt to achieve a celebrity-like status or an influencer status. You try to find identity and purpose and the number of likes and followers that you have, believing that you're loved by thousands or even millions. People who watch you but don't actually know you, don't actually care for you. To what end? With what guarantee? Fickle relationships at what cost? Or do you turn to the desires of the flesh? Pornography, sex, illicit relationships, seeking that thrill, that drive, that satisfaction, that self-fulfillment that lasts but a moment. And each time ends up being less satisfying than the time before. Do you turn to your health, to a certain number on the scale or body fat percentage or weight to be benched? That once achieved, that number will somehow miraculously change your life. Or that you will be liked and accepted by others. Others who in their own vanity are just as worthless and reckless as you. Do you turn to material things, a certain type of house? The certain things in it, a car, a boat, a TV, a gaming system, name whatever your thing is. But all things in the end, what do they lead to? What do these material things lead to? You can't take them with you, so why do you have them to begin with? What are they actually worth? Who determines their values? What are you pursuing by possessing them? Maybe, though, maybe you turn to traditions customs. Maybe you'll find meaning if you get married, settle down, have a family, join a, a random church, you get involved in a local community, you're actively faithfully serving America. You are a good American citizen. The reason that you wake up each day is because of your family. It's your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's all of them. So you endure the grind, you endure the nine to five, the midnight shifts for them. But again, to what end? What happens when your spouse cheats on you, leaves you, no longer makes the dinner that you like? When you're no longer satisfied in your marriage? Or your children don't grow up into the people you thought, you were confident they were going to be? Or they rebel and they disown you? What happens if tragedy strikes and takes your children or your family? Where is your purpose then? Where is your fulfillment? None of it lasts. Whatever you are building, if not with the right purpose, it will not stand. It will be consumed in the fire. Or maybe you find all of this in your career. Your job is one of value and purpose until it isn't, until you're laid off for one reason or another, or you're simply replaced because, quite honestly, you're replaceable. I'm replaceable. Or the economy collapses for a variety of reasons, completely outside of your control. What then? 
What work can you do that will survive this age? Ecclesiastes 1.14, the teacher reminds us, tells us, I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. All is futile, and he's striving after wind. So what's the answer? Where do we go from here? It's not that all these things that I've gone over are bad. Some certainly are bad, but not all of them. Some are certainly good or can be good. But if we turn and depend on any of these things, if we look to them for meaning and purpose and lasting significance on their own, they are idols. And with the idols, we get the fruit. And with the fruit, we get the futility. We get the life of the bramble, not the life of the vine that cheers, that gladdens the heart of God. We want the life of the vine. We don't want the life of the bramble. That's life of Abimelech. That's life he led, and look where it led him. There's only one place we can go, Christ Jesus, who is, as John 15 tells us, is the true vine. He is the, the one who created all things, all the things, all the things that you're pursuing, he created, and all things were created for him. All the things that you're pursuing that you think are for you are for him. You were created for what? For who? For Christ, the creator. That's your purpose. That's your end. That's why you exist. It's why you live. It's why your heart beats. It's why you're breathing right now because of Christ. For him, not for your pleasure, not for your delight. Your delight ought to be his delight. He is the one, being the creator, who holds all things together. Your life that you're trying so hard to keep together, he's holding it. What are you doing? You didn't create it. He did. He's holding it together. Turn to him, not to the things that he created. Turn to the creator, not the created. Your heart that's beating, he's keeping it beating. Eat, drink what you want to a point, but he's ultimately keeping it. Don't think you are the one that determines the number of your days. He does. Not just only that, but your soul, which doesn't need your beating heart to exist, he's keeping your soul together. You think that the creator, who is perfect and holy and all-wise, created you without a, a purpose? Nothing that God does is futile. Nothing that God does is without a purpose. He is wholly sovereign, and he knows all things. He has a purpose for you. But for you to know that purpose and to do that purpose, you must be in Christ. Otherwise, you'd be like Abimelech. You'd be chasing after idols. You'd be chasing vanity. You'd be striving after the wind. And you'll suffer the consequences of chasing after idols, of living a life of idolatry. So you must repent of your sin, and you must trust in Christ by denying yourself, identifying with him, that is, picking up your cross and following him. That's the path of salvation. And the path of salvation leads to fruitful, purposeful work. Ephesians 2, 8, 10, which Ellen brought up earlier. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. This is why you were saved. This is why anyone is saved. It's for this purpose, because you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
This is your purpose. This is why you live. This is why you breathe. This is why you woke up this morning, whether you knew it or not. You woke up for the good works that God created uh, for you that he prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them, that you should live in them, that you should do them. And if you're walking in these good works, you're not going to have time for idolatry. You want to stay away from idolatry? Walk in the good works that God has prepared for you before all of time. You'll be like the vine. You'll be like the fig tree, the olive tree, and say, why would I want to give this up? Why would I want to give up this good work that honors men, that gladdens the heart of God? Why would I give up this productive, honorable thing for something else? Ask the worthless one over there, the bramble. He does no good work. He will surely do it. This life of faithfulness also produces within us the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of idolatry. Galatians 5, 23, Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice what's not in there. Quarrels, violence, jealousy, envy, bloodshed, selfish ambition, and conceit. Continuing on in Galatians 5, Paul tells us how those who belong to Christ are able to live lives free of drama, toxic relationships, verses 24 to 26. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another as the men of Shechem provoked Abimelech, and Abimelech, the men of Shechem, envying one another. Conceit, envy, is what leads to division and calamity among people and God's people. Consider James 4, 1 through 4. James, writing to the church, says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your idols, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, you're seeking to feed the idols. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So turn to Christ. Crucify the flesh. Let it be Christ who lives in you. When you struggle and the flesh wages war against you, and the indwelling sin mounts in an offense against the holiness of Christ that's in you, cry out to him. Cry out to Jesus. Cry, Abba, Father. Let the Spirit speak for you and fight for you, even when you don't have the words. Let him do the work. Don't give idolatry a foothold. Don't fall for its lies, its deceptions. Remember who God is. Remember what Christ has done. And remember that whatever task God gives you for this life, whether it's to sweep the streets or sit in the Oval Office, what gives you purpose and value is not what you do, but to whom you belong and why you do what you do. Remember 1 Peter 2, 9, 12, another way of stating our purpose, our reason we exist, and who we are. It's what the, book, the next book that we're going over in Table Talk is about. 1 Peter 2, 9, 12, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. That's you. You're a royal priest. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Before, you weren't. Before, you were not a chosen race. You were not a royal priest. You were not a holy nation. You were not a people that belonged to him. 
But you are this for a reason, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, that is, on the day of judgment. But perhaps you're thinking pragmatically, well, how do I destroy these strongholds that take captive my life? How do I destroy the strongholds of Baal, Bereth in my life? How do I cut down the Asherah poles of this age? How do I keep myself from following the Abemelites and the worthless, reckless idols of this age? especially since they are often not things that take up a physical space, as, as Gideon clearly had a pole. I don't clearly have a pole anymore. I, I, I can't just chop it down. These are things that we often find within ourselves, that we find in various worldviews, various philosophies of life, sins and temptations that aren't relegated necessarily to a particular place, but they stay with you throughout the day, regardless of where you go. They're in your head tempting you, calling you, deceiving you. How do you combat this? Well, listen to the instructions that God gives us on this issue through his apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 3-6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy, to demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So when you hear or when you are tempted by the idea, by the words of Abimelech, you be you, follow your heart, or maybe love is love, or truth is relative, so you do your truth. Whatever it is to you, you do that. Or Pursue the American dream, that's purpose, that's meaning, or it's your health that matters, your weight is who you are, or what you do for a living, or what legacy you leave behind, that's ultimately the most important thing. Take such strongholds, arguments, lofty opinions, or as it's translated in other versions, which I like some of these, imaginations, speculations. Take these rebellious thoughts, take them and put them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let Christ determine truth. Let Christ determine love. Let Christ determine your worldview. Let Christ determine your ambition. Let Christ be your all in all. And rejoice in it faithfully, with integrity, knowing that you can, because you're not being led astray by Abimelech's words. Christ is your compass. He's your true north. He's your northern star. He's your refuge, your stronghold, your harbor. He's your lighthouse in the midst of the storm. He is Christ, the Son of God, your Lord and Savior. He is the true vine, whose wine gladdens the heart of the true God who delights in him. John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is a vine dresser. And then verses 5 through 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. This is the fruit that we want. This is the good fruit. This is holy, righteous fruit. This is fruit that will last for eternity. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, apart from me, if you're not in me, the true vine, 
Whatever you're doing, it's futile. It is worthless. It's meaningless. You're wasting time. And then he goes on to say of the consequences. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And then the branches are gathered and they are thrown into the fire and burned. Just as Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, through their idolatry, were consumed with fire. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your words and the reminder and, and the warning of the reckless nature of idolatry, the foolishness that it is. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us, that even when our hearts wander, your grace is there. We can always go to you. We can always find that forgiveness. We can always know that forgiveness. We're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So, Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your faithfulness, even when we are not. May your words continue to speak to us and teach us. May we continue to meditate on them day and night and seek ways to, to apply them uh, to our life faithfully. May you guide our footsteps, our paths, wherever you may lead us, whatever we may pursue, Father, may we pursue it for your glory in the name of your Son. May we seek your Son in, in all things. May we uh, be mindful of how we talk, how we react, the things that we do, that, that we're doing it for your glory, not our own or somebody else's. So, Father, help us to be mindful of our time, how we're spending our energy, how we're using it, uh, how we're spending our money. Help us to speak truth and wisdom in one another's lives. May we be open to correction as needed, as well as encouragement. And, and Father, for anyone here who is perhaps wondering, well, what does that look like? Well, what, what's, what's this purpose in my life? May your spirit guide, guide them, and, and may they go to your word, and may they seek such wisdom and counsel from brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And, and may you open doors for them, and, and may we all, Father, know uh, the peace uh, that, that comes with walking and knowing your will. May we trust in your sovereign hand that if we're faithful and we continue to pursue you and put our affections upon you, you're going to guide our steps. And for everyone here, it, it's, it's going to look different. So, Father, help us to, to just be okay with that and, and to know that it, it doesn't have to be something uh, overly significant or, or, or what we think is overly significant or magnificent, but help us to uh, be fine with what we view as ordinary, knowing that you work through the ordinary, Father. So, Father, just help us in these things. Be with us as, as we have, have, have lunch th this morning. Be with us in our conversations. May we seek to glorify you both in word and deed. Um, and may we love one another as you've called us to. We ask that you'd bless the table before us, Father, the bread and the cup, that as we come to it, our sins would be known, we would confess our sins, that we would seek repentance, that we would be reminded that the work of your Son, it is finished, that we'd be reminded of the truths of the gospel as we taste it this morning, and that we would be reminded that your Son is returning one day to judge those, those who are, don't abide in him, and to be a blessing to those who do abide in him, Father. We thank you for all these things and all the things that we have not yet spoken, do not have time to, Father. You know them all. We thank you for your sovereign hand. We thank you for your mercy and grace. And we ask all these things, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, we'll go into a, a communion. If you are a believer, 
who is not walking in unrepentant sin, uh, you may come on up, grab the elements, uh, take it uh, to your seat, um, and then uh, Matt will come up and we'll take uh, the elements uh, together, and then Dave will close us with a couple songs of praise.